Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I have a really big show for you today. First on the plate, the failed coup in Turkey. Where did it come from and what happens next? Then, the racial generation gap. New census data showed divisions underlying the presidential election. And finally, here our final installment in the Syrian refugee crisis series. An attempted coup in Turkey against the government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan failed. To help us understand what happened and what may happen next, I'm joined by Kamal Kirishi, the TUSIAD's senior fellow and director of the Turkey Project in our Center on the United States and Europe. Kamal, thanks again for joining me on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. What do we know about who was behind the attempted coup in Turkey? Uh, the, the government is adamant and unequivocal that behind the coup was the Gülenist movement. The uh, Gülenist movement is associated with a preacher who is actually residing in the United States. And the image that the Gülenist movement here in the United States has is one of a movement that advocates moderate Islam, dialogue between uh, faiths, and is very liberal market-oriented and has also made a reputation, a positive reputation uh, for itself through its educational establishments in Turkey, across the world, as well as in the United States, for educating students in especially science. And often I resemble these educational institutions to the kinds of colleges that the uh, Protestant movement Presbyterians from the United States were setting up towards the end of the 19th century and early 20th century around the world, including in, uh, uh, in, in Turkey. The Gülenist movement was in alliance with the current government in power in Turkey from the time they had come to power in 2002 uh, November. Uh, one of the important agenda, uh, one of the important items on their common agenda was to check balance and eventually neutralize the influence of the military in uh, in Turkey. And uh, a reasonably good job was done uh, with, uh, in, that, in that respect. However, the relationship between the government and this movement began to deteriorate a couple of uh, years ago, product of a power struggle, but also product of uh, the Gulen movement infiltrating the institutions of the state and particularly the judiciary but also the ministry of education and the the police at the time there was not much talk that this was taking place with the military uh, as well all this came to a crisis point uh, uh, when two two sets of indictments were put together known in Turkey as Ergenekon and Sledgehammer that culminated in the imprisonment of a large number of top-ranking officers from the Turkish military. 
At the time, there were lone voices that were arguing that these indictments did not live up to the standards of a rule of law uh, con uh, country. Uh, as the coalition began to crumble, appeals through the court system in Turkey started to turn down the uh, the uh, the court rulings against these generals and eventually these generals were released and this is also the point at which the crisis within the coalition reached its peak when in december 2013 the gulen movement released a series of cassette video cassettes as well as information uh, flagging at levels of corruption uh, within the uh, uh, the uh, the government, uh, it is very difficult to establish whether the allegation put forward by the government is one that would hold in uh, in uh, that would hold when it comes to scrutiny from uh, courts that implement the standards of uh, rule of law. However, there is a general sense in Turkey shared by people who are not particularly associated with the government and who do have reputation as columnists and academics that can take a critical view on these issues, that it looks like the Gülenists may well have been involved and what came as a surprise as well as a shock beyond the coup attempt itself is the degree to which this infiltration has uh, taken place. But there is also those who argue that as much as the Gülenists may have been involved in this coup attempt, the size of the coup and the number of military officers, especially high-ranking military officers that have been involved in, in this, suggest that there may have been other elements of uh, the, uh, uh, the, the military involved in, uh, in this coup attempt. Now, uh, the government of Turkey has demanded that the U.S. extradite Gulen, who I believe resides in Pennsylvania. Do you think that will happen? Uh, the Turkish government has uh, asked or requested the United States government to extradite uh, the head of this movement, Fethullah Gülen, on a number of occasions. And uh, this has not surprisingly been repeated on this occasion, and it's being repeated in a very unequivocal manner that inevitably reminds me of a line that uh, the a previous president of the United States, George Bush, had used in the aftermath of the 9-11 uh, events when he turned to the world and basically on uh, Iraq said, you are either with us or not. I think the psychology of Turkey and the chemistry prevailing in Turkey is along those lines. And many in Turkey, not just in government, but beyond government, uh, feel that this is a test of Turkey's uh, relations with not just the United States, but the West uh, as well. If we are indeed allies, you need to turn this person in. 
extradite him. However, the U.S. position on this is that the Turkish government has to produce, put forward evidence that is going to stand up a scrutiny in a court of law in the United States. I am skeptical that the Turkish side has that kind of uh, evidence, given how uh, detailed and, and how slow and uh, how at times acrimonious uh, legal processes in uh, the United States uh, can be. But what will be very important here is the United States showing the will and the inclination to cooperate with Turkey seriously on investigating these allegations. And John Kerry, although at first seemed hesitant in condemning the school and standing up in support of an elected uh, government, which came later on from the White House and it him, himself uh, as, as well, did also say that they were going to cooperate with Turkey on this. I think this would be a very wise step. It will be a kind of a confidence-building step. But there is also the reality that this coup uh, threatened indirectly the United States national security. Turkey is a very important ally of the United States and a member of NATO in an extremely difficult uh, neighborhood. If indeed they were involved in this coup, uh, coup attempt, they would have uh, weakened and destroyed, undermined such an ally uh, of great importance to the United States. Uh, furthermore, if the United States can and will show that kind of cooperation, it will help to instill an element of trust in that relationship, but also in a way address this paranoia that has gripped uh, Turkey right, uh, right now. With that, the U.S. may also enjoy a degree of influence to make sure that as a function of this paranoia, Turkey does not adopt and implement policies that undermines and endangers uh, Turkey's rule of law, but its remaining democratic credentials. I want to take this moment to call attention uh, for our listeners to a recent event, a terrific event in which you participated here at Brookings and included other Brookings scholars, Fiona Hill, director of the Center on the United States and Europe, moderated a panel that also included uh, Shadi Hamid, Michael O'Hanlon, and Omer Taspinar. Um, you, you all talked about a wide range of issues um, regarding the coup, why it happened, um, what happens next, implications for regional security, the fight against ISIS, Syrian refugees, um, Turkey's role in NATO, what it means for Turkish democracy and domestic politics. A terrific event. Um, listeners, you can find that on our website uh, on Turkey after the coup. Kamal, during that event, um, you talked about the fact that there have been many other military coups in Turkey um, in your lifetime, and yet you called this one shocking. Why was this one so shocking? It, it was shocking because, paradoxically, 
the government that is uh, in power had in the early 2000s and mid-2000s pushed through reforms in Turkey that had not only benefited the Turkish economy grandly, but had also brought Turkey closest that it has ever been to a liberal democracy as well as to prospects of EU membership. And when you have such a Turkey in mind, in, in spite of the uh, uh, challenges to democracy in Turkey that has emerged over the last couple of years, and in spite of the growing authoritarianism in Turkey, I was quite confident that Turkey as a country and as a society was going to be able to address its challenges through democratic means, through the electoral process. And I had the impression that this given, if you wish, or this political axiom was also accepted by the military. And uh, in some ways, retrospectively, when I look back at it, maybe this belief on my part was partly correct. It was partly correct because a good part of the military and a good part of the top brass in the military did not join the coup. And them not joining the coup played a very important role in the coup uh, being suppressed and fizzling out. Secondly, secondly, also the public and opposition parties came out very quickly and very unequivocally against this coup. These two factors lead me to conclude that uh, helps me to, to explain why it came as a shock, but it also helps me to uh, maintain an element of hope that uh, once these extraordinary times are over, and I hope they will be over uh, very uh, quickly, uh, Turkey will find a way of, uh, of returning back to its democratic values that had made it, that had uh, brought it a lot of soft power and prestige, uh, uh, and prestige internationally, but also prosperity and stability internally in Turkey. Well, I want listeners to, um, to hold on to that idea of hope, even as I ask these next questions. Um, We've, uh, we've seen that Turkey's parliament has, um, I think, suspended the European Convention on Human Rights. There's been a crackdown on elements of the military, the judiciary, uh, the Ministry of Education. Many pe thousands of people have been detained or dismissed. Um, Turkey just issued a travel ban uh, for um, academics. Are you worried about the state of democracy uh, in Turkey, at least in the short term? I am, of course, extremely worried. This is not a picture that I want to see for Turkey. But inevitably, I have to situate it into a context. A coup attempt has taken place. And a coup attempt 
that doesn't resemble any of the previous coups that I personally experienced in my lifetime. This coup, let alone the deaths and the injuries and the casualties in human terms it has provoked, an F-16 and other aircraft has actually physically attacked the Turkish parliament. And this has led many people to raise the question of how come a pilot on which the Turkish state has spent more than $1 million for his training has managed to do so. So it is extraordinary times. And at the event that you have made references to, I resemble this to an earthquake and a very serious earthquake. And each earthquake is followed by after effects. And I, I would like to see and believe that the adoption of the emergency rule that you have referred to is one of those after effects that will eventually die down. I would also like to take the remarks made by the president of Turkey and one of the deputy prime ministers of the government that this is truly temporary. And uh, the deputy prime minister even said that though the rule was adopted for three months, that they are hoping and expecting that this will be over within 40, 45 uh, days. I think that statement is going to be very critical in uh, testing whether my hopes have a chance to become real or not. So Turkey is a NATO ally, and it's also a key player in the region in the fight against ISIS, and also in um, accepting hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Syrian civil war. Uh, do you think um, what's happened now could uh, hamper Turkey's role in, in fighting ISIS and in, in helping with the Syrian refugee crisis? One of our colleagues yesterday at the event you made references to pointed out how the uh, dismissal, dismissals and detentions of that large number of uh, people and officials, he said, has gutted the Turkish uh, state. And even inevitably, this is going to have an impact on the Turkish state's ability to manage the challenges that you just made uh, references uh, to. After all, it's individuals, people that run these uh, organizations. However, I also yesterday after our event attended an event at the Washington Institute and a former U.S. ambassador to Turkey also made the remark that the Turkish state is a resilient state and that it will be able to replace this personnel, but that also some of this personnel will be re released back to their uh, positions. And I made a similar remark yesterday at our event too. The Turkish state is a state that has been carried over from the Ottoman Empire. It's a state with a very long history 
it's not a state that was set up by colonial powers. It is a state that has deep roots in history and in Turkish society. So on that account too, I would like to remain hopeful because I know the states at first hand and I can see all kinds of faces in that state, uh, men and women who are dedicated to their tasks and are going to try to make their best to see Turkey through these extremely difficult times. Well, I think uh, that hopeful note is a great way to end this conversation. Kamal, I really appreciate your time in helping us understand what's going on. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. And you can also hear in an upcoming episode of our Intersections podcast, a discussion between Kamal and senior fellow Ted Pacone on the implications for democracy. And remember to visit our website to find a transcript and video of the event on Turkey after the coup. And now, in this Metro Lens segment, senior fellow William Fry talks about new census data that reveal a racial generation gap that he says will play a central role in the upcoming presidential election. Hello, I'm William Fry, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. Metropolitan Phoenix's over-age 55 population is 78% white. By contrast, its under-35 population is only 45% white. Albeit an extreme case, these racial disparities in Phoenix are indicative of a growing national trend which speaks volumes about the divisions underlying this year's presidential election. As I have written in my book, Diversity Explosion, this racial generation gap is more than just an interesting statistic. It reflects a cultural chasm between older and younger populations, each with a different view of history and of America. Older whites, in particular, grew up in an era when the nation was largely white, with few new immigrants, and where blacks, the largest racial minority, lived in heavily segregated areas. Their acceptance of today's younger, more diverse America is increasing, but by and large they don't yet fully embrace this change. In fact, a poll conducted by the Pew Research Center indicated that over half of white baby boomers and seniors see rising immigration as a threat to traditional American values and customs. In their views and voting patterns, they often seem disconnected from the concerns of younger people who they don't see as their children and grandchildren. Not surprisingly, surveys show that these younger people, including younger whites, are more open to demographic changes in America. They engage in mixed-race friendships, dating, and marriages. They tend to favor more government spending, even if it means higher taxes. And in the last two presidential elections, younger voters played a large role in electing Democrat Barack Obama, compared with older whites who voted heavily for Republicans John McCain and Mitt Romney. So what does this racial generation gap mean going forward? Frankly, there will probably be near-term divisions, political and other, especially in places where the gaps are widest. Like Phoenix, the state of Arizona has a sharp racial generation gap. Over the past two decades, Arizona has experienced large growth in its young Hispanic population, along with a rising white retirement age population. 
In terms of politics, mostly older white voters have swayed elections for Republicans who have proposed sharp immigrant enforcement laws. But this status quo may be challenged in coming years as younger Hispanics get older and are more inclined to turn out to vote. In Nevada and Florida, two other states with wide generation gaps, politics have split along racial and age lines. Even though both states produced Democratic wins in the past two presidential elections, older whites predominantly voted Republican, and their diverse younger populations have voted Democratic. But this doesn't occur everywhere. New England whites tend to vote Democratic. And in Washington, Oregon, and Iowa, whites have done so too. Predominantly white states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin voted Democratic in 2012, but they're only because the younger minority population had a large turnout and voted strongly Democratic. Of course, with increased turnout of whites expected this year in these states, the Republican voting tendencies of older white voters could well deliver Republican wins there. Longer term, though, we should see this gap begin to close as minority populations continue to grow and reach whiter parts of the country and as younger minority populations begin to approach middle age. An important group that will close this gap is the millennial generation, now in young adulthood. This generation is just 55% white and 30% new minorities, meaning Hispanics, Asians, and persons who are two or more races. Millennials are the bridge generation between the older white America and the younger, more diverse post-millennial America. It's clear that minorities among the millennial generation are destined to make their mark as leaders in business as well as politics, and their voting clout will be substantial. Furthermore, the minority footprint of millennials is especially prominent in states like California, where the millennial population is less than a third white and more than 60% new minorities. In 10 other states, including Texas, Florida, Georgia, and New Jersey, less than half of all millennials are white. These places should be the first to lead the impact of a more diverse millennial population. The racial generation gap will no doubt play a central role in November's election. But the rising role of America's diverse millennial generation may bode well for a greater acceptance of the young by the old in the future. So perhaps in 2020, the political divide between younger and older gener generations will be just a crack instead of a wide chasm. You can visit our SoundCloud channel to listen to more insights about Metropolitan America in our MetroLens series. Finally today, a group of Brookings experts recently contributed their insight and ideas to a series of blog posts called Rights and Responsibilities, Solutions to the Syrian Refugee Crisis. One of these experts was Matteo Garavoglia, a visiting fellow in the Center on the U.S. and Europe. Here he is. My name is Matteo Garavoglia. I'm the ELE Program Fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe within the Foreign Policy Program here at Brookings. I've been researching now the European migrants and refugee crisis for the last couple of years, really. And as part of this work we're carrying out here, I'm trying to shift uh, a lot of people's focus away from Greece. Greece has been in the news, that's what we've been following it. But I think this is yesterday's news and we should try to focus on tomorrow's news. Uh, the European Union has effectively shut down uh, the East Mediterranean route with this deal between the European Union and Turkey. And what I want to highlight is that we see a new trend whereby Italy might become the new Greece. 
there's a new wave of migration uh, that we could be seeing uh, taking place over this summer, not from the East Mediterranean, but across Central Mediterranean, fundamentally between Libya and Italy. Now, what is the situation there? Um, the, the migrants that are trying to cross from Libya into Italy um, are from overwhelmingly from Sub-Saharan Africa. And in that respect, they tend to be classified as economic migrants as opposed to people that escape uh, persecution, human rights abuses of war. Because of that, they are far less likely to be granted asylum and refugee status in Europe than the Syrians, Afghanis and Iraqis that were uh, coming to Europe uh, from the Eastern Mediterranean, from Turkey into Greece. Now, uh, what is interesting is that in, now in, in May 2016, we have seen for the first time uh, that more migrants are now reaching Italy than Greece. So that could be the beginning of a, of a shift. Italy has been learning from its past mistakes, I have to say. Uh, it has been doing its homework. Uh, let me give you two, three examples in that respect. Italy has just set up a brand new headquarter in Catania, a town in southern Italy, uh, to coordinate the work of the European Union Regional Task Force uh, for Migration. It has opened five, or we should say by now six, hotspots that are fundamentally first reception centers where migrants are screened and, and admitted into the country. And it has brought out its reception capacity across the country to uh, just over 100,000 people. So Italy has been doing uh, some of its homework somehow, uh, but uh, a solution is needed, a sustainable solution before it is too late. Uh, within that context, Italy has uh, shared proposals with, with its European partners for a new migration compact with Libya, but uh, a compact that also involves the broader region. That might be wise indeed, since Europe is certainly unable to stabilize Libya in the short term. Uh, its leaders should therefore start thinking about uh, the country only as a variable within a far broader um, equation. So, um, uh, this is something that I've highlighted and, and elaborated upon in a, in a piece that I've recently published on, on foreign policy. What can Italy do in the meantime while Europe hopefully gets its act together? Well, Italy has to brace itself for the potential arrival of over 800 thousand migrants that are currently in Libya waiting to cross the Mediterranean. This is according to a joint report uh, issued by Europol and Interpol. Uh, and in order to do so, it can probably take three steps, uh, first of all. It can increase the number of uh, the hotspots in, in, on the southern coast of Italy, uh, bringing them up to seven or even eight, so, to, uh, so as to have a stronger uh, processing capacity. It uh, can increase its reception capacity by trying to uh, boost to somewhere in the region of 150,000 the number of places available across Italy to host um, asylum seekers while their, their applications are being um, processed or migrants on the short term. And last but not least, it should have uh, a blueprint, something to work with, to mobilize its entire navy, or virtually its entire all entire navy, should that be necessary? That is to say, if we happen to see this uh, flow of people crossing from Libya into Italy over the summer, the Italians must be ready to to launch probably one of the largest search and rescue missions in history. These are all 
important measures that Italy should take, and these are the stopgap measures. What we do need is something far broader, which is a, a migration compact involving both Europe and Libya, but even beyond that, Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. You can listen to our recent episode with Bobby McKenzie, who organized this effort to learn more about this research and hear more also on our SoundCloud channel. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send me feedback email at bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.